Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. How are you managing childcare lately? Beth By, Commissioner of Connecticut's Office of Early Childhood, says seven out of ten households need childcare in order for a parent to go to work. Coming up, we talk with her and find out how the state is handling a shortage of childcare slots. First, campaigning for political office isn't exactly kid friendly. Caitlin Clarkson Pereira is a Fairfield Democrat who ran unsuccessfully for the Connecticut General Assembly in 2018. She made national news when she inquired about using funding from Connecticut's Voluntary Citizens Election Program to help pay for child care for her young daughter. The State Elections Enforcement Commission, which oversees the program, denied the request. And last year, Clarkson Pereira filed a lawsuit challenging the SEEC's decision. Last month, a Superior Court judge sided with the former candidate. Producer Carmen Baskoff reached Caitlin Clarkson Pereira on Monday. She described what it was like to be on the campaign trail with a young child. For me, there were certainly times where I would have to bring my daughter along with me. And at this point, she was three. And so... I think in some ways, you know, voters would see me at the door with a three-year-old and some were really excited. Some were definitely like, what is this woman doing on my front step with her daughter trying to run for office? Uh, but while it was, it was an interesting experience for her, even at that age, one that she still speaks about over two years later, uh, it definitely makes it more challenging <laughs> to be out knocking doors, to be walking around, particularly in the heat and, you know, trying to have conversations with voters while you're holding your three-year-old. And, you know, she's not going to last nearly as long as, as an, an adult would out knocking doors. And she also, you know, has things that she needs to do, like nap and diaper changes and all of those requirements for, for anyone of toddler age. Did you have any childcare options at that point? Were there people who were able to sometimes watch your daughter for you while you were going out on the campaign trail? There were, there were certainly times where, you know, her father, who was working a full-time job, I was working a full-time job, he was able to be with her. Uh, there were a couple of family members of mine who were able to, to pitch in every now and then. But I just, based on geography and, uh, and ability, just didn't have the opportunity to take her and, and drop her off at certain people's homes for, for hours on end. You know, I'm, I'm certainly grateful for the people who were able to help when they were able to help, but it just, unfortunately, it wasn't all of, during all of the times that I needed to be out and about doing campaign-related work. So, Caitlin, can you talk about when you decided to get in touch with the State Elections Enforcement Commission um, to ask about using public funding for um, election funding for childcare, and and did you have a sense of you know is this something that people had done before? So it became, it was towards the end of July when it was clear it was you know time to start hitting the campaign trail more often to have conversations with voters, 
and it was getting very hot. And there were times I had my daughter out when, you know, it's 95 degrees and I'm like, this certainly is not pristine parenting by any uh, means of the definition. So I, I was wondering what the options were, mainly because I had seen Luba Gretchen Shirley, who was a candidate for Congress running in New York, who had put forth a request to the Federal Election Commission regarding the ability to use campaign funds for child care. And she was granted permission to do so. And in learning more about her, I also learned about certain states that were allowing this, had this, the same premise in mind and said to candidates that yes, they could use campaign funds to reimburse childcare. Uh, at the time, the states I was doing research into were like uh, Texas, Alabama, Wisconsin, Louisiana had initially said no, but the candidate who put forth the question there decided to challenge that and they ended up reversing it to a yes. So the conversations were happening at the state level, particularly after Luba won the case with the Federal Election Commission. And so here I am running in Connecticut and I'm thinking, well, we're certainly more progressive <laughs> than the state of Alabama. So I'm going to ask this question. And to be honest, when I submitted the request through email, there was never a thought in my mind that I would receive no answer. And about a week went by between the time I, I sent the inquiry and the, the State Election Enforcement Commission responded to me. And when I got the no, I was stunned. And even before I finished reading their couple page response, I knew that the no was not the an acceptable answer. In 2018, with this blue wave, particularly of women running, and us wanting to, to have diverse candidates in the country and at the federal level running for office, what were we doing saying no to this? And so that's when the conversation started from the administrative standpoint, okay, I received a no to this question, what happens next? And can you talk more about what you did next then? So I was very fortunate, am very fortunate to have some amazing legal minds in my life, some attorneys who worked together on putting a petition, basically explaining why the no answer was not the right answer and why it needed to be changed. And so those conversations started happening literally the day within the hour of receiving the no response from SEEK. And we worked on that for a month and a half or so and received research from the State Elections Enforcement Commission, you know, ruling, we asked for rulings they had done in the past. And there was one in the 70s that said that not only child care was a legitimate expense, but dependent care. So if I had a, you know, a sibling or a parent or somebody who I was responsible for taking care of, that needing somebody else to take care of them while I was out campaigning was, was a legitimate expense. And so in reading that and from the 70s and thinking like, oh my gosh, that was the 70s and it's 2018 and what is going on? The difference being that that was before the citizens election program was created. But again, the mission statement of the citizens election program is to, to keep corruption out of campaign financing and, and again, to give more diverse candidates the opportunity to run. So it really makes perfect sense when parents say, hey, this is something that I, I need. I am I, not going to be able to be the best candidate I can without access to these reimbursements. So 
That was submitted in October. It took the commission a couple of months to hear that. And that included uh, an opportunity for public comment. Uh, and then in the springtime in April is when we got our uh, official no response that they weren't going to change what they had initially told us. So that's when we were out of administrative options and we had to move forward with the lawsuit. So last month, uh, Superior Court judge ruled on this case in your favor, uh, saying that a candidate should be able to use public financing for child care services. Can you talk about what your reaction was to that ruling? Sure. So when my attorney called and he said, I have some good news, we won. Uh, I was just elated for sure, and also felt this immense amount of relief come over me because it had been over two years since I asked the initial question and received the no response. And so this was something that, you know, it wasn't in the front of my mind every single day, but it certainly was at least in the back of my mind, even when things were quiet, because, you know, every once in a while I'd have somebody reach out to me who wanted, who was thinking about running for office and say, and say to me, like, is this money going to be available for me to use for reimbursements? And I would say, I don't know the answer to that question, right? We went the entire 2019 election cycle in the state of Connecticut not knowing. And one of the governor's bills that he put forward before, unfortunately, before the 2020 legislative session was cut short by the coronavirus, one of the, the bills put forward was to, to make it available to make uh, child care reimbursements available for candidates through citizens election programs. So there were various points when things were, were looking up and things were positive and then there, there always seemed to be something that got in the way. And so for two years to have this going on behind the scenes and to know that it was a fight that I couldn't let up on, again, just a massive sense of relief uh, washed over me. So as you mentioned, this was two years uh, you ran back in 2018. Um, Ultimately, you did lose that election and you weren't ever able to use um, your public financing uh, for childcare during your own campaign. But, you know, this year now is an election year. And I'm wondering what you'd want to tell candidates running today um, who may have young children. So for candidates running in the state of Connecticut who have young children, you know, please, knowing that this is available now and whatever calculations you were doing in your mind as to, you know, when a a spouse or a a mother-in-law or the neighbor or whomever you might trust to be with your child here and there in this like hodgepodge mix of times to know that if you want to hire a caregiver for your child for four hours on every Saturday from 10 to two so that you can go out and knock doors and you know that that is your time to do that, this this is what the, the ruling says that you can do. And so to me, I'm so excited to see this put into action. I'm not sure who the first candidate will be who will submit a request for reimbursement for child's care, but it that is a really profound moment. And it gives, I really truly believe it gives an opportunity for people to run who were crunching numbers before deciding that they could to to say, I don't have 
a couple thousand dollars to spend through the course of my campaign to pay for child's care. And I don't think I can do this without that option, right? For me, taking one child, again, while my daughter was three, was a challenge. It was doable. We proved that we could do it. It wasn't always fun. <laughs> it wasn't, it certainly wasn't the most productive way to be on the campaign trail, but we figured out how to make it work. If I had uh, an infant, if I had a couple children at home, certainly I, I would not have been able to even attempt such uh, involvement uh, with, with getting you know, multiple children out on the campaign trail. That was Caitlin Clarkson Pereira talking with Where We Live producer Carmen Baskoff. Uh, Pereira again won her appeal against the State Elections Enforcement Commission. Now, to be fully transparent, I wasn't able to record an interview with Caitlin because I had childcare issues. We'll be talking more about working parents and the struggle to find childcare that's coming up. Now, back to this recent Superior Court ruling that states candidates running for office in Connecticut can use public campaign funds to reimburse childcare expenses as long as they're the, quote, direct result of campaign activity and properly documented by the campaign. Now, joining us now by phone to talk from the perspective of the State Elections Enforcement Commission is Shannon Clark-Keefe. She's legal program director for the State Elections Enforcement Commission. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, talk through uh, from SEEC's perspective when they got this inquiry from Clarkson Pereira, why the board ultimately ruled the way it did. Well, when we administer the program, um, we have to look to the program's rules and regulations. It's a clean elections program and candidates go out and they raise a certain amount of money to demonstrate public support. The way the program works is they do all of their own fundraising, um, and most of that money comes in from constituents within their district that they'll be representing. Um, And then once they've met those public thresholds, they agree to abide by the program rules, and um, they have an expenditure limit. So for us, the question was uh, how the regulations regarding the expenditure of public money came together and spoke to child care. We had, up until 2018, we had never been asked this question. Um, The regs are much more strict for the spending of public money than they are for privately raised contributions. Um, And it just wasn't entirely clear where within the regs this fit, and we went out to other public financing programs. We surveyed um, 10 of our sister programs. Uh, Three were in the same boat that we were. They had never been asked or answered the question. Two did allow it, and four didn't. Um, And the most the most telling for us was the the 10th, which was the New York City program, the oldest and most successful public financing program in the nation. Uh, they had explicitly forbid it, and then the legislative body had looked at it and uh, considered it at a series of hearings and come up with uh, how they wanted it to work in Connecticut. So there, the child care absolutely is permitted. It's limited to children under 13 years of age. Um, the amount of money that can be spent and the timing 
of when the money can be spent before the election, not after, is spelled out in the regulations. And so after looking at this and the policies behind the public financing programs, uh, our commission just thought it made sense to ask the legislature how they wanted this to work. Um, Many of the campaign expenditures in the program um, are allowed but have guidelines as to how much is allowed or when it's allowed. And so our commission decided to ask the legislature um, how they wanted this particular expense to work. And at the same time, they made the ruling. They also proposed legislation um, with a series of options taken from the way that it works in different states and different clean elections programs for them Mm -hmm. to consider. So the SEC didn't want to overstep its regulatory role. At the same time, uh, you're proposing or the commission's proposed that legislation needs to happen in Connecticut to clarify this part of the law. Exactly. Exactly. And so what happens now? Uh, will the SEC appeal this? or Because that is something that, that is a potentially could happen. That's something that Lieutenant Governor Susan Bicewitz had had mentioned when this ruling came out, that the SECC could appeal the new ruling, and that's why the law needs to be clarified in our state. No, we're we're not appealing. Um, Right now, the court stepped in and spoken in place of the legislature, and we're absolutely going to follow that. Uh, Candidates participating in the 2020 election will be able to spend on child care. There's room for the legislature uh, to take further action if they want to. They could adopt the broader definition that we had proposed, um, which would have allowed for dependent care as well. Um, or they could adopt limits like the New York City legislative body did. Um, so there's definitely room for them to speak. But as of right now, child care is permissible under the program. Mm. And that's an important point when we think about the success of the citizens election program, uh, Shannon. It's allowed more residents uh, to be have accessibility to run for public office, including more women and minorities. And so being able to uh, use some of this public funding to pay for child care when candidates have to canvas when they're walking uh, in neighborhoods for hours on end, uh, meeting potential voters on the phone, uh, trying to uh, campaign. It is a a necessary part of the process. Absolutely. And our our commission's point of view was not whether it should be allowed, but how it should be allowed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with government programs, it takes a little bit of time to work through the process for things. Can I ask, uh, we are on another important election cycle. Are there other candidates that are coming forward and asking the commission uh, to be able to use some public funding to pay for child care expenses? Not yet, but I'm sure there will be. Well, I want to thank uh, Shannon again, uh, Shannon Clark Keefe, who's the legal program director for the Connecticut State Elections Enforcement Commission, uh, for talking uh, from your perspective on the SEC about uh, this uh, interesting ruling that came out again from the Superior Court. And uh, you can join our conversation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Shannon, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now, coming up, child care is important, and there's not enough options for parents, especially in this pandemic. What are parents supposed to do? We'll talk to the commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood, Beth By, after the break. We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from the legal director for the State Elections Enforcement Commission about how it will follow guidance from a recent Superior Court ruling to allow candidates running for office in our state to use public financing to pay for child care expenses. Now, no matter your profession, finding child care can be tough, especially these last several months. And even if your child is back at school for part of the week, not every parent can work from home. If you're working from home, how's it going managing your work and your child's remote school schedule. If you leave every day for your job, did you find it hard to find child care? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share your comments on our Facebook page or on Twitter at where we live. Now joining us now to talk about child care in Connecticut is Beth Bai. She's commissioner for the Office of Early Childhood. Again, Commissioner Bai, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here. Good morning, Lucy. Now, before we talk about the child care crisis, you were a longtime lawmaker. I wanted to hear a little briefly your reaction to Clarkson Pereira's lawsuit, which will now help parents, both women and men, campaign. Yeah, I think it's sort of a metaphor for what women uh, face in general sometimes. Um, but I, th- I love the story because it shows her persistence paid off. And even though she's not going to benefit, others will. Um, but it's sort of a no-brainer uh, that child care enables you to do a job you need to do, whether that's running for a campaign or uh, working in child care or doing your job. Now, we wanted to focus on the child care crisis that you came on uh, when the uh, pandemic was at a stark point where there were a lot of people in the hospital. The shutdown of our state um, was very clear and definite. Uh, and uh, there was a child care crisis because some people still had to go to work. Uh, Beth, could you remind us uh, during uh, the spring uh, the impact on both child care providers and parents who were looking for care? Yeah, uh, both sides are really impacted, Lucy. Um, what happens in childcare is um, a lot of parents during the pandemic um, ha- did pull their children, especially after schools closed, and then providers that were open were faced with a staggering drop in enrollment, even if they wanted to stay open. So many closed, and we had to have many strategies to keep enough open to support the frontline workers, and we were able to do that. Um, but the impact on the childcare industry uh, has been really difficult um, because three quarters of programs rely entirely on parent fees to stay open. And so three quarters of programs closed ultimately. Um, and now we're up to about 53% of our pre-COVID supply since that time in Connecticut. But you can hear in that number that uh, even as the economy reopens, childcare is not opening at the same pace and there are some public health limits on number of children per classroom, et cetera. But it's interesting, there is a supply problem and a demand problem at the same time. And this is going on throughout the country. Did you say that we're at this point, we're only up to 50% of childcare providers that that existed pre-COVID? We have 53% of the supply that we did before COVID, yes. And um, with schools either remote or hybrid, um, if you add in school-age children who need child care, uh, you have well over twice as many kids um, and you have half of the supply. And uh, there was never a supply for full-time child care, so that just didn't exist. Uh, so you have programs under strains, families in need, and it's sort of difficult to match the two up. 
Now, I know uh, the state uh, helped find child care for uh, essential workers, uh, like people who worked at hospitals and nursing mm-hmm. homes. But I'm wondering, as you mentioned, schools have reopened, but many school districts are, are doing this hybrid um, model where there's kids in school for just part of the week. And so where is the need now and how is the state responding, Beth, Commissioner? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. Um, well, the need the need is everywhere because um, we still parents still need childcare. Um, but again, on the supply side, so if you're a parent of a school age child and you need childcare, um, and you look to a childcare provider, that's going to cost you a thousand dollars a month. So I know a number of programs have tried to open to meet the needs of school age families, and they haven't gotten the enrollment. Um, because families don't have an extra thousand dollars a month uh, sitting around. So they're looking for other options. So the demand is not leading to supply. Um, So there are a number of things that families are doing. I mean, this is really a community by community issue because the uh, schedules differ by community. Some communities are fully open, some are partly open, um, and some go week by week. And so in many cases, uh, communities are opening programs working with local nonprofits because um, municipalities have the ability to open uh, child care programs uh, without licensing and they can work with nonprofit partners. So we know there are 175 such situations set up in the state and just 12 have opened in the past couple of weeks where uh, communities have called us to say, uh, we're gonna be opening up a program So uh, the State Department of Ed and OEC uh, from the beginning of the pandemic through now have been updating guidance for communities that are looking to set up um, specific childcare based on their school scheduling and um, parents and school boards have been responding in some communities. Other communities have not responded. So there is that option. Uh, I know our office has been working with the statewide parks and rec agencies. And also, um, I had a really thoughtful email from the after school network saying here's some other things the state could do to help. So it's really uh, community based uh, solutions are a big part of the answer. Um, and some of it is in existing childcare programs that are open, but they are finding the affordability issue a real challenge for families. Mm. You're hearing Beth Bai here on Where We Live. She's commissioner for the Office of Early Childhood. Uh, one of the uh, agency's responsibilities is to uh, license uh, childhood child care providers in our state, daycare centers, and we wanted to talk with her about the struggle to find child care for parents, especially during this pandemic. And despite uh, schools reopening, there's still a need because of uh, various uh, school schedules uh, that have kids in school for just part of the week. We want to hear how you're managing um, where you live. Again, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to go back uh, to two points, uh, Commissioner By. Uh, one, when you're hearing from municipal governments that may have parks and rec uh, departments that have some capacity to help with uh, filling these uh, child care uh, slots. I'm wondering if you could talk through um, how that's going and um, the fact that they don't need the, the licensing to do that. Right. We, we have talked to many of them and the ones uh, that have opened, uh, it's going really well because you have an organization overseeing it. Um, 
So that that works well. The other thing, uh, we put out a memo uh, just late yesterday um, clarifying that camps can reopen under their camp license and operate during the school year uh, to help. And we have a number of camps uh, that have already asked to do that. We have 12 that have opened, summer camps that are opening to help. And then parents can also call 211 child care and ask for child care. And that will bring them both to family child care settings, which are smaller, which is what some families are looking for, and to center-based care, either near their work or home on those, on those days. And I should also mention, we've also allowed family child care homes to take three additional school-age children um, all day on the hybrid days. Um, so that's been working out as a good option for families. Um, so we've really been encouraging communities to have forums to listen to families about what their particular needs are, um, because, you know, schools are the biggest provider of child care in our country and our state and everywhere. Um, they provide care and education. People trust teachers. They trust principals. They feel like their kids are safe at school, much like they do with child care programs. Um, so they have a sense of relief when they go to work. And a lot of that has been upended uh, with the various school reopening schedules. Um, but it's, it seems like it's going pretty well with the schools reopening. And, and we really found that with childcare as they reopened. Once they got opened and they were back with the kids and a lot of the fear reduced, if you will. So, um, you know, we now have 2,092 programs open, which is a, a big increase from the low of about 1,300 uh, during the pandemic. We're going to take a listener call in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you in the lead up to schools trying to figure out what the reopening plan would be this uh, this year, uh, Commissioner By, you know, we, we heard uh, from teachers, especially those protesting against fully reopening, uh, you know, holding signs saying that they weren't childcare. How did you respond to that sentiment? Um, well, um, I will tell you, there's been a lot of work done over the past three years on the national level of building a power to the profession where we were bringing together public school teachers and early childhood educators, and everyone agreed on a framework and a level of respect that we would have for each other and our different roles. That, um, and it felt it was really difficult for early childhood providers um, when they heard those words, we are not childcare, because it was as if childcare was was less than. I understand what the teachers were saying is don't prioritize us as childcare over our health. And mm -hmm. I, I get that and, and I understand that. Um, but there were a lot of childcare providers who were on the front line since March who felt really offended by that sentiment. Um, and, you know, it's just an anxious time for everybody, Lucy. And I think we're all in this together. And I think, you know, the vast majority of teachers and early childhood educators have tremendous respect for each other and work together collaboratively. Uh, but that sentiment was difficult. And we haven't even talked about uh, how child care providers, people rely on them. They are not well compensated for the work. Some don't even have health care, Commissioner By. Yeah, uh, more than a third do not have health care, Lucy, and they've been on the front lines. Um, and it's the lowest paid profession in our state. And again, uh, they've been out there. We had some programs um, during the pandemic to send extra funding to programs to assure that, that providers uh, were getting additional pay at that time. But, you know, childcare has a lot of systemic issues and low wages are a big part of it um, uh, because, uh, the, you know, parents can only afford to pay so much and um, 
as much as parents can pay, it does not lead to good wages for the teachers. Uh, so there's this tension there. And so um, we're really working as an agency uh, with the Lamont administration to look at ways to reach the full cost of quality um, going forward as a state. You can join our conversation with Commissioner Beth by 888-720-9677. We want to hear how you're managing to work and find child care. Amanda's calling in from West Hartford. Amanda, you're on the show. My name is Amanda. I'm lucky enough to live in West Hartford, and my daughter, actually my youngest daughter, attends an amazing public pre-K program through the public schools in West Hartford, and we have the Family Resource Center in our school, which is just an amazing resource and the most generous folks you could ever imagine. But we're supplementing for my older daughter with some of these hybrid school care programs that are being offered through West Hartford. Um, but I'm noticing that all of the hybrid school programs that are being offered are starting at uh, kindergarten because that's considered school-based. So there's really no option for hybrid school programs for pre-K kids. And then the daycare options that exist don't want kids attending more than one program because of the possibility of um, kind of cross Bread. So do you know of any options or are they working on options for public pre-case and how to manage remote and hybrid learning? Um, when some yeah. of the school-age yeah. programs designed to address really start at kindergarten, so it's kind of these, or we just have to give up our spots in these pre-K programs, and it's just, they're just phenomenal programs, right? That's kind of my question. So, so ideas and strategies for pre-K and preschool where private daycares aren't taking kids who are also in public school because of concerns about the virus. Yes, Amanda, uh, you are so lucky to go to Charter Oak and have that Family Resource Center. That's what the best of early childhood going on over there. Um, and uh, you don't want to give up that spot. Um, Amanda, I would suggest that you call 211 Child Care and um, see if there's family child care options in that neighborhood. And I believe there are some family child care options because just today we've expanded their options of accepting school-age children um, full day and they can also accept preschool children um, and you know they're a terrific option for families um, you can also if that doesn't work feel free to reach out to my office and, and we'll do our best to help you as well and i know i talked to amanda aronson uh, from the west Hartford school board and mayor Cantor, who are both uh, really concerned about this issue so i'd recommend that you also uh, reach out to them again to point out this gap in service because uh, I know that the bridge was offering extended day preschool at some point. Maybe they're not at this moment because of the pandemic and space, et cetera. But, but I bet you'll find um, some people to help solve that problem. Irene Garneau is also a good resource. Um, so um, hopefully that helps you. Again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, especially if you have a question for Commissioner by the Office of Early Childhood, um, if you're struggling to find child care slots and options uh, for your children. Uh, you know, we just had the governor on the show the other day, yesterday, um, uh, Commissioner by, uh, where he stressed that he does not want to see entire school shut down if, say, there's one positive COVID case. We mentioned earlier child care centers have been able to stay open during the, the peak of the pandemic? And uh, how are they able to do so safely? What have we learned about uh, that that springtime and the, the guidelines in place to keep staff and children safe? Yes, really great question, Lucy. And, and we've also met with the Superintendents Association to fill them in on some of the strategies. Um, we have a really comprehensive set of guidance uh, related to you know health screening with families before kids come in. 
um, and cohorting, making sure kids stay in their cohorts and staff stay in those cohorts, additional cleaning and hand washing, um, being outside as much as possible. Um, and uh, as of uh, today, we've issued guidance around wearing masks, which is going on in most public preschools, but we're now um, asking uh, childcare programs to do because we know that's another mitigation measure. As, as a CDC and Academy of Pediatrics issue these guidelines, um, we're following it. So since March, you know, we've had up to 2,000 programs open, 1,500 to 2,000. Um, we have a total of 79 cases. The vast majority are among staff and um, very often not traced back to the, the program, but still uh, there have been cases um, when you have that many kids and that many programs, uh, even with the positivity rate as so low, there have been 79 cases. It's way lower than it is in the general population because of the mitigation strategies. But mostly what's happened is one classroom closes and the rest of the programs open or if they're waiting on tests to be returned, sometimes they'll close the program for a couple of days while they wait for the test and come back. And I think the schools are figuring this out with their local health department. Every case is different and the contact tracing is, is really important. So I think, um, you know, there've been very few cases overall given the number of schools, but we all need to pay attention to them and make sure the protocols are, fo are followed and let public health guide. But these mitigation strategies of cohorting, screening, um, et cetera, distancing as possible um, have been really important. And now um, I think mask wearing uh, is going on in many, many programs already, but that's another protective measure. When we think about cohorts in these hybrid programs, Commissioner Bai, are you concerned that with more uh, money of these school districts starting with hybrid, so they have the cohorts for the school, but then they also need child care on the days uh, that their, um, you know, the parents may not be able to stay home and help, and that that starts up a whole nother uh, cohort. Uh, just the fact that you know that can be problematic when we're thinking about containing uh, the spread of this virus. Yes, Lucy, I'm not the public health expert, you know, but I do um, interface with many childcare programs and they've been doing such a super job cohorting. Um, but some of the new protective measures are because they're feeling more at risk now if they're running an after school program and kids are coming from multiple classrooms into their center. Um, part, you know, different kids on different days from different classrooms. The fact that schools aren't either entirely reopened or entirely closed means that kids are moving from cohort to cohort. Um, and so, you know, there is some concern there. And, you know, we all hope that schools will be back in session soon. Um, but I think everybody, I mean, this is one of those things where everybody has a role to play. The schools, the childcare programs, the families um, in, you know, working with kids around distancing and mask wearing and hand washing etc. Um, there's no perfect here, which we're all used to spending our lives uh, eliminating risk. And, um, you know, with COVID, even though the risks are low, you know, around 1%, um, it's still out there. And we all have to treat this seriously and follow all the protocols. And we found that the early childhood providers have been doing a super job I also want to add, uh, without removing everything from the classroom, if you walk in your average preschool classroom right now, it looks like an average preschool classroom. It might not have as many rugs, and they might have tape on the table to make space for kids to eat, a space apart, et cetera. But there's still a lot of toys and activities, 
et cetera. Um, as schools were opening, there were a lot of these questions and, and we worked um, with superintendents to say, no, you can still have your, kids need activities, they need to play, they, they need to read books, et cetera. Um, so we need the classrooms to look like early childhood classrooms because you know play is the work of children and they need things to play with, they just need to be cleaned more often. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Beth By, Commissioner for the Office of Early Childhood. We'll continue talking with her after the break. We'll take your calls to 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The Associated Press reported recently research points to a retreat of working mothers from the U.S. labor force as the pandemic leaves parents with few childcare options and the added burden of navigating distance learning. Is that your life? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Anna's calling from Montville. Anna, you're on the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So tell us what you're dealing with. Um, I just, yeah, I just um, wanted to comment. Like, I have two children. I have a, a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, and um, I work at a casino on call, which was a great job for being a parent. I was able to work not a lot of hours, make good money, but I was finding my own child's care. I have a lot of help. I have my mom. I have wonderful neighbors. But now it's like I, I picked up a second job and I'm making less money now because I was claiming unemployment before and I love both of my jobs and it's just such a struggle. My husband's grandmother pays for my daughter's preschool. We could never afford it. Um, my husband could only afford to insure himself and our daughter, me and my son. I'm uninsured. My son is on like Husky B. I'm working two jobs. I'm like having trouble finding childcare. My mother is retired, still working full time somewhere else. And she has other children. She can't watch, you know, my kids all the time. And I just, I, I don't understand how somebody could be a single parent without any help in this world and afford to take care of their kids. And now like I have to work on Thursday and my son is supposed to be virtual learning. And I don't know you know, who I could leave him with that could help him with his schoolwork. You know, it's it's a difficult world that we're living in. Anna, thank you for telling us what you're experiencing. Commissioner Beth By, uh, any advice for Anna and how she can navigate this? Because it's a story that, that many people are living today. Well, Anna, I'm so sorry for your struggles and the challenge. And um, first of all, I would suggest you call 211 Child Care. You may well qualify for Care for Kids, which is a program designed to help families pay for child care. Um, and uh, people find it helpful, and we're finding more and more families calling, asking for child care subsidies. Um, and during COVID, we have some exemptions for families who've fallen, who lost their jobs and are in job search, um, who can still qualify. So. Um, I think that could be helpful. And you're right, Anna, it, it's it's so difficult. Before COVID in Connecticut, where so many people are struggling more now, 
80% of all families and 94% of Black and Hispanic families in Connecticut did not earn enough to reasonably afford the price of childcare without some help, particularly infant toddler care. So um, it, it's a real problem. We need to have a reckoning as a state because uh, you say you love your jobs, you want to be able to work. And we know that childcare is part of the infrastructure that helps people work. Um, so hopefully you'll get some help um, from 211 Childcare and you can feel free to reach out to my office as well. Um, but um, we wish you all the best and your, your kids are really lucky to have you doing all you can to make this work. Um, as you said, uh, families are just really facing dire choices and difficult choices. Mm. Uh, Commissioner Bai, how are you hearing from our employers in our state? How are they responding to these child care needs, uh, not only because of the economy, but the fact that these, depending on the community you live, your school schedule doesn't mesh with your work schedule? Yes, we're definitely hearing from employers. We're, we're working with the Connecticut Hospital Association right now as they're they're struggling. Um, we met with Lego this week uh, to talk about ways that they've been able to support employees. Um, we have employers like uh, Bigelow T who are helping us strategize longer term system challenges. Um, uh, as part of the governor's workforce council, we see business as a critical partner, but um, we're definitely hearing from businesses that this is a challenge. And, and that's part of why we're trying to work with communities, um, camps, um, any way we can uh, to make care more available, make options available uh, for families. And again, hopefully schools reopen in the near future in a way um, that supports us, but they may not. And I think then we all have to be ready to pivot. Um, one of the most discouraging things is uh, we've been waiting for uh, the, every bill that's right now in Washington uh, on the COVID response has a significant investment that would bring a minimum of $100 million to Connecticut for child care support for families. But that seems to be stuck in the political process. So um, we've put out about $125 million since the beginning of the pandemic to try to support and stand up child care using federal and state dollars. Uh, but that's coming to an end. Um, you know, those funds are out there and we were hoping for uh, another federal bill. So we're, we're pivoting and looking for other options and talking to business and communities and um, working really closely with Commissioner Cardona on the, on these issues and also uh, with Commissioner Durantes um, because um, we're all in this together. We just have a couple of minutes left, Commissioner, by this might be a conversation for a whole nother show, but as someone who has been an early childhood educator, as well as a lawmaker, what are your concerns about the long-term impact on child development? Uh, you know, Lucy, they're really significant. Um, kids rely on structure and routine to build their brain architecture. And this pandemic has um, thrown structure and routine up in the air, I'm sure, as you know, as a parent. Um, and also parents rely on trusted individuals, childcare providers, teachers, um, to support them and give them a break uh, from caregiving. Um, some of that has been disrupted as well, those supports that families rely on. So. Uh, there are significant worries about uh, the impact of this on children. I mean, the first five years, the brain is growing at a faster pace and making connections more than any other part of life. 
Um, and I think that's why, you know, Governor Lamont and Lieutenant Governor Bicewitz have been really focused on trying to make sure that the early learning programs can be open and coming up with ways to support them at this time. Um, but it's a really challenging time um, for children's brain development. And, and on our website, I should just say to families, you know, on our website, we have a lot of supports for families um, and links to uh, supporting children's social emotional development. And as programs reopen, um, we're putting out more training and professional development around that social emotional health because uh, this has been, it's set everyone off their footing, parents and children alike. And we, we all need to uh, look for ways to support both programs and families uh, to support that critical stage of development. Beth Bly again is Commissioner for the Office of Early Childhood. Thank you so much for the time you've given us to talk about this. Very yeah, great to talk mission. to you, Lucy. Good luck with your child care exploits. <laughs> Not easy. Thank, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Tess Terrible was on the phones. You can check out uh, Where We Live on your favorite podcast app anytime. You don't have to listen to us live at nine, but we do appreciate hearing from you each day. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. Listening.